Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. March is Women's History Month, and it's a real honor to be able to chat with Rabbi Sasso, who is a pioneering figure in contemporary Jewish history. Rabbi Sasso was the first woman ordained from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 1974 and the first to serve a conservative congregation together with her husband, Rabbi Dennis C. Sasso. They were the first practicing rabbinical couple in world Jewish history. Following 36 years of service, to Congregation Beth El Zedek in Indianapolis, Indiana. She is now its senior rabbi emerita. She is an internationally known award-winning children's author who has published 11 children's books. She has also authored a book for adults, God's Echo, Exploring Scripture with Midrash. Active in the arts, civic, and interfaith communities, she has written on Midrash, women, and spirituality. Through many nationally acclaimed children's books, she has pioneered creative literature that engages the religious imagination of children. So welcome, Rabbi Sasso, to People of the Book. It is great to be with you. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm really excited to speak with you. I'd like to start by asking you about your journey towards becoming the first female rabbi ordained by the RRC in 1974 and the second woman formally ordained in America. Um, I'm just curious, um, what inspired you um, to become a rabbi at a time where there really weren't a lot of um, role models. And how did you go about um, making it happen in a world where this was really a revolutionary idea? It wasn't as hard as it may uh, appear today. I loved my synagogue. I was especially active in my youth group. I participated uh, locally in my synagogue youth group. I participated regionally in a larger uh, youth expression. I um, was enamored by the rabbi of our congregation. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Philadelphia and I belonged to congregation Knesset Israel, uh, which was a reform congregation, and the senior rabbi was Rabbi Bertram Korn, who uh, was an extraordinary orator and rabbi, and my mentor uh, from the first time I decided I wanted to enter the rabbinate all the way through until I was ordained. Um, I assumed that since I was allowed as a young uh, teenager to participate fully in synagogue life, that I would be accepted in taking on a leadership role. 
that was on the one hand. On the other hand, I knew what I was doing was not what most women were doing at that right time. absolutely right and then i and so i first decided i wanted to enter the rabbinate when i was 16 years old i remember returning home uh, from shavuot services at which i was confirmed with 120 other students uh, going up to my room sitting on the edge of my bed and saying I know what I want to do with my life. I want. And what to was your life. parents' reaction to that? My parents were supported. Uh, they said, "Whatever you want to do, you go ahead and do it." That's wonderful. I mean, that's that's amazing. I, you know, what I'm really curious about because nowadays it's so easy. You want to get information. You want to go somewhere. You want to do something. You just go on the internet. You just, you know, you can figure anything out by going on the internet, but there was no internet back then. So how did you um, figure out what what the steps were? Um, was your rabbi the mentor or how did, how did you research um, it? Because, I mean, I, there was just, um, well, when you were 16, I guess there weren't any female rabbis. And then just um, the, the first one was Sally Prezen, but that was just a little bit before you. So how did you, um, as a teenager, I guess in the 60s, I mean, how did you make a plan? At the beginning, I kept my uh, desire to enter the rabbinate a secret for most people. I was concerned how people would react to that decision. And I was an adolescent. I, I didn't want to be different than everybody right. else. You know, I wanted to fit in with my friends. So I often didn't say what I was hoping to become. But there were a few people that I shared this dream with. Uh, and they were uh, the rabbis in my congregation and my family. Fortunately, um, those mentors uh, supported me. I didn't really have a plan to begin with. I entered college thinking that was the direction I would go, but not being totally certain. You know, you have to ask yourself who, you know, I ask myself, who am I <laughs> to do something which is in many ways revolutionary? Um, I was not a rebel. So I started taking Hebrew in college. I majored in comparative religion. I prepared myself for the kind of background I would need to enter rabbinical school. Where I spoke to my college? rabbi. And then when I was ready, when I graduated and I finally decided this was what I wanted to do, I spoke to the rabbi of the congregation and I said, tell me what are my next steps? How do I go about this? You know, some people ask, you know, how did you have the courage? And I suppose my answer is if you love something strongly enough, you'll brave the scary parts. And there were scary parts at that time, but I loved 
Judaism that much. And I loved what I saw a rabbi did, that I was willing to deal with whatever was difficult that might lie ahead. Well, you know, I, yes, you were, you were incredibly courageous, but I don't think that um, a lot of people uh, who weren't around at the time remember um, just how difficult it was for women back then. It was really just the, the cuss, the beginning um, of the women's movement. And um, there were, um, in a lot of professional schools, um, there were quotas for, for women. And certainly, how did you um, make the case um, in, in a rabbinical school where there had never been a woman before? Or did you not have to? Fortunately, I did not have to make that case at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, which was then in Philadelphia. They had decided since their inception, which was in 1968, that if there was a qualified woman, they would accept that woman. And I entered one year later in 1969. Mm. So I didn't have to make the case to the college, but I had to make the case to the community as a whole, many of whom uh, were opposed to women entering the rabbinate. Uh, and just another comment that might be of interest. Yes, feminism was beginning at that time. It, it, at least this second wave of, of feminism was becoming very uh, vocal and prevalent in the community. And I probably couldn't have done what I did without that. However, feminism in the late 60s and the early 70s, uh, 70s did not address religion. Many uh, of the feminists who wrote at that time really uh, dis decided that religion was patriarchal and there was no point in having a conversation about it. So it wasn't until later that feminism embraced religious tradition and we have now what we call Jewish feminism. Yeah, However, that's, that's yeah, right. but at the time, I here I was wanting to be a rabbi and Judaism was ex, uh, exceptionally important to me and my life, uh, but it wasn't really addressing women's issues. And there I was considering myself a feminist, but feminism wasn't addressing uh, issues of religion. And I really had to find a way to make a bridge between my Judaism and my feminism and connect the two, because that did not exist then. If you went to look for a book about women and Judaism, you couldn't find any, not a single one that wasn't apologetic. Now my library is filled with shelves and shelves right. of books. So how did you build that bridge? And um, what was it like for you as the only woman in rabbinical <laughs> school? Well, um, what was it like? You know, I have to say that uh, my fellow students were welcoming. Uh, that the faculty was welcoming, but, you know, underneath um, what everyone was saying was the thought that I would get married and I would leave. I mean, I, I heard that whispered now and again. 
it so happened I did get married. I married a fellow rabbinical school <laughs> wow. in 1970, Dennis Sasso, um, and I did not leave. In fact, when we graduated, we became the first rabbinical couple in world Jewish history. And we were on the front page of the Evening Bulletin. That was the Philadelphia Evening Paper at the time. Wow. So, so how did that, I, I'm, I'm really curious. Um, I know that um, there have been some couples since then. Uh, you were the first. So how did that work? <laughs> I guess it worked. You did it for 36 years. So I guess it worked. How, how did you make that work? We made it work. We will be married 52 years this June. Uh, we have also a, a wonderful uh, marriage, a great family, and uh, we enjoyed sharing the pulpit for 36 years. We started out at separate congregations. Uh, we then came to Indianapolis to Congregation Beth El Zedek. Uh, which is both a reconstructionist and conservative congregation. And we worked there together for 36 years and um, it was wonderful. Good for the congregation, good for us, good for our family. Um, I feel very fortunate and I'm very grateful that we were able to do that. That's, that's really, that is amazing, amazing, um, wow. Um, so I want to um, I want to shift gears a little bit here because um, not only are you a, a trailblazing uh, pioneering rabbi, um, but you're you're an author. Um, I understand that there are a staggering um, number, four hundred thousand of your books in print. Uh, you've written 11 children's books as well as an adult book. Um, and I'd like to ask you a little bit about your life as an award-winning author. So first of all, how have you combined uh, working as a rabbi and an author? Was that something that you um, did later? Were you always a writer? Um, had, had it, and how did you combine the two? So first of all, I'm going to bring you up to date. I have 25 children's books. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry uh, about no, that. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I have two books for adults. Okay. Uh, that I have authored. I always wanted to be a writer. Actually, before I wanted to be a rabbi um, in sixth, seventh grade, I said, I am going to grow up and be an author. So writing was uh, something I loved. Uh, and it was actually very easy to combine it with my love of Judaism um, mm -hmm. and my rabbinate. So you know, when I began my studies uh, in rabbinical school, one of the first things I noticed was what was missing. And what was missing was, were stories about women, uh, their lives, their feelings, uh, their perspective. And I started asking questions. It wasn't that no one was answering what I had to say, but no one was asking them. Wow. And I think my writing um, evolved uh, from those questions. 
I, I felt there was so much missing and I wanted those stories to have a life. And what were some of those questions? Just curious. Well, you know, you, you read um, history, uh, Jewish history, or at that time you did. There were no women's stories. No one told the story of the first woman ordained in Berlin in 1935, Regina Jonas. We didn't even know that she existed. Right. Um, very, and, and I have written a children's book on her, Regina Persisted. Uh, no one knew very much about the history of the first bat mitzvah uh, in the Society for the Advancement of Judaism Reconstructionist Congregation in 1922 of Judith Kaplan Eisenstein. Um, you know, we knew it happened, but we had no stories. And I really have become a storyteller. You know, when I came to Congregation Bethel Zedek, uh, in 1977, you know, I did a lot of work with families and I discovered the best way to communicate was through story. And I did a lot of work on uh, learning how to be a storyteller and that has influenced my writing. So I wrote really to answer kids' questions, to answer my questions, uh, to be able to communicate complex ideas through narrative so that um, everyone could embrace them and understand them. So uh, let me just ask you, um, what, how did you uh, learn to be a storyteller? What are some of the things that you, that you learned when you, when you tell these stories? Well, I read stories and uh, you'll know how old I am by telling you I listened to cassette tapes and records <laughs> of, of storytellers telling stories, you know, Jewish storytellers, uh, non-Jewish storytellers, you know, secular storytellers. I went to a storytelling conference. I collected books of stories and over time through uh, my own interests and my own study, uh, I found this uh, a way for me to communicate that was both comfortable for me and um, was received well. Uh, it took a lot of practice. <laughs> it took a lot of practice. Um, when, did you, when did you write your first book? How my first book was published in 1992, but I had written it six years before, and it took me six years to find a publisher. Okay, so well, now this is a question they never ask a man, but I will ask it anyway. <laughs> um, how, how have you been able to combine um, working as a rabbi and an author, and I, I'm going to add raising a family, which they would never ask a man. But I mean that that that's a lot. That's a lot on your plate. Yes, that's true. I mean, I, I have engaged much more in writing, you know, now that well, my children have children. So I mean, at the beginning, I I wasn't doing very much writing. You know, I didn't publish until 1992. Uh, so I was primarily being a rabbi, which, of course, is a full time job as well. Right. Uh, I was fortunate, you know, my husband, Dennis, was very supportive. We were both rabbis. We supported one another, both at home and in the congregation. Uh, I was fortunate to find um, very good caregivers who would help me. Um, things worked out. I can't say they were easy. 
you know, uh, looking back, I know there were very difficult moments of trying to juggle everything. Um, I actually started out part time in the congregation because my kids were very, very young. And once they started uh, attending school full time, I became full time in the rabbinate as yeah, well. I think that's what people really don't understand today, you know, when they talk about um, universal child care and everything, there, there were not all these no. options way back when. So I'll tell you something, because of that, I started a program at Congregation Bethel Zedek at the synagogue that has now blossomed into, into a full early childhood program. When Wonderful. my daughter was two years old, I said, well, how come we don't have any at the synagogue, you know, for young families. And we started one class with eight kids. We called it then Mother's Day Out. It uh -huh. became Parents' Day Out, and then it became Early Childhood. My daughter was the, one of the first students. Her children have now graduated, you know, a few years, quite a few years ago from the program, and it is a very successful program. Wonderful. So I took an issue that I had for myself and I recognized it wasn't mine alone. And we started a program. Good for you. You took a lemon and made lemonade. Excellent, excellent. So um, do you prefer writing? Uh, I think I know the answer to this, but I'll ask anyway. Do you prefer uh, writing for children or adults? And, and what's the difference? Well, you know, I love writing for both. I have to tell you, it's very hard to decide. I, I do a lot of writing of essays uh, for in chapters and books, <clears throat> more so than writing books for adults, but I, I do like that kind of writing. But I love writing for kids. It's so different. You know, um, I just spoke to a whole group of uh, children yesterday on a virtual visit to a school. And one child asked me, so how long are your adult books and how long are your children's books? <laughs> so I go, well, my adult book is about 200 pages and my children's <laughs> book is 36. Um, it's very different writing for children. It, it isn't that you simplify the concept, it's that you simplify the language. You know, the words you use are so significant and each word um, has an incredible power. Uh, I could spend hours deciding on one right word. That probably wouldn't happen when I'm writing for adults because I have freedom to explain things more. But for children, it's about telling a story. And I always believe that children are capable of complex philosophical ideas if you share them in story and you allow them and invite them into a conversation. And that's what all my writing has been. I want children to see themselves in the stories I tell and then be able to talk about their own lives and their own concerns and their own values. We often try to tell children what stories mean. All we are doing is telling children what the story means to us. We have to give them permission to find their place and tell their story. And that's what's so wonderful writing for children 
is when you read stories to children and you invite them in, they tell you so much and they expand the story in so many wonderful ways. That, that's great. That's great. Thank you for, thank you for that insight. Um, so in an article celebrating the 10th anniversary of God's Paintbrush, your first book, which has sold more than 100,000 copies, uh, one journalist remarked, they may not know who she is, but if a generation of young people has grown more comfortable expressing their views about God, they may want to thank Sandy Eisenberg Sasso. So um, Rabbi, what does that quote mean to you? And um, I think you kind of answered this uh, already, what you've sought to instill in children through your books. Well, I'm so touched by that quote. I mean, you never know when you write a book, a story, you know, how it will resonate uh, with your readers. And to hear that fills me with great gratitude. Um, I have always believed that children have a deeply spiritual life, but what they don't have is the language to express mm -hmm. it. Mm. And adults are afraid of the conversation about God. Children are not afraid. Children don't mind mystery. They don't mind questions without answers. It's adults that mind that. And so I wanted to write books that invited children to have a conversation about spiritual issues, you know, about God, about meaning, about anger, about compassion, you know, about, uh, caring for the earth. I mean, how do we engage children in that conversation? Uh, how do we help them, encourage them to maintain their sense of wonder and imagination and surprise and creativity, which they have. And what happens is, you know, we don't nurture it, so they often lose it. There's a fascinating study that was done by NASA, which measured um, creativity and imagination in children. When they tested five-year-olds, 98% had, had strong creativity impulses. By the time uh, they became adults, only 2% had that. Oh my goodness, wow. So why are we not giving children the kinds of stories about God and faith and meaning that can um, allow them to be creative in their thinking and imagination and that they can grow with? I hate to give children ideas about God that they will later reject in adulthood because we think they can't deal with the bigger concepts. That is absolutely wrong. The reason so many people, when asked what their religion is, say none, is because the way they were taught about religion is, as children is not hard to reject. It doesn't absolutely. make sense. Absolutely. It doesn't make sense in our world. So I want to help kids make sense uh, of what their faith could mean to them, not what God could do to them because they were bad or for them because they are good, but what they can do because of God. 
God yes. is the power that gives them courage in scary times, helps them uh, be grateful for what they have, gives them grace. I mean, why not? It's part of their struggle for freedom and justice. Why not help them see a God that's big enough uh, to include all those ideas? That That's really beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, I understand that you hold a doctor of ministry from Christian Theological Seminary. I was wondering um, how that has informed your books. It's very interesting. Um, I took a number of classes at Christian Theological Seminary, which is a Disciples of Christ Seminary in Indianapolis, but um, they had lots of classes that were of interest to me. They had a particular program for um, a doctor of ministry for any clergy who had spent a number of years uh, as an active clergy person. So actually the most uh, powerful class that I took was a class on children and religion. And I remember getting an assignment from the professor uh, and I was not very interested in the assignment. I said, do you mind if I try to write a book about God? Because I can't find anything that makes sense to me. And I was very fortunate uh, to have a professor who says, go for it. I don't know how to respond to that. Oops, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was very fortunate to have a professor who allowed me to do that. That mm -hmm. was God's paintbrush. So I had the opportunity to think a little bit more about how I would engage children. I had to do a dissertation mm -hmm. and I decided to do my dissertation on children's spirituality. And it opened up a whole new world for me, uh, I, a whole new realm of study, conferences that I went to, um, conversations that I had with other people who were interested in this field. Uh, so that was the beginning of, in many ways, a, a new path for me uh, in engaging children's spirituality. Great. Um, so, so some of your books are ecumenical, correct? Oh, absolutely. I, there are many, I have some books that are specifically Jewish, but I, there were lots of authors writing books that were particularly Jewish. And I wanted to write books about God and faith that belong to everyone. Mm -hmm. And that every, so the first book, God's Paintbrush, everyone can read that book and they will paint God with their paintbrush. Uh, because we needed to see things that brought us together as well as to see how we were different. And all these books can be read with by people of all faiths. And they all bring um, their paintbrush and color the story uh, from their souls. And that's what's so powerful. And I've actually done a series of books on New Testament parables with a well-known New Testament uh, scholar, Amy Jill Levine. And we have uh, retold many of the well-known parables in ways that do not say negative things about Jews and that open up stories for all of us in very powerful ways. So that, that has been another project of mine, a more recent one. 
Wow. Wow. Well, we're, we're coming towards the, the end of our uh, time here. Uh, is there anything uh, else that you'd like to add or, or tell us? I would like to thank you for this conversation. Uh, I think they're children, you know, as we all say, are our future, and we have to give them the building blocks with which to build a future. And we need to give them stories to help them grow. And we need to give them permission and opportunity to tell their stories to help us move toward our future. Well, well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Rabbi Sandy Sasso. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please vis visit us and like our Facebook page people of the book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain, the author of The Takeaway Men. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book. 